Hello, Pastor Matt here. At New Life Baptist Church, we are pleased to be able to make these resources available to the public. Our desire is that these online resources or any other resources you find online would never be used to replace you joyfully belonging to a local church body, but rather that they would be supplemental for your walk with Christ. I pray that through this sermon, the word of the living God would stir your affections for Christ, strengthen your commitment to him, and broaden your understanding of who he is. As you're headed to your seat, please grab your copy of God's Word. Turn to Romans chapter 3. As you're doing so, I want to reiterate encouragement to follow along with us in the Passion Week reading plan that we have inside of your bulletin. Follow along every day. There's a new reading for the week, just to help us keep our minds and our eyes and our hearts and our thoughts centered on the events of this week, leading up and culminating in the celebrating the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. We know how this story ends, don't we? Christ wins. The title of our sermon today is Because He Died. We're going to be in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26. I hope you're there. If so, please stand with us as we read God's Word. This is the Word of the living God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text. We thank you that you are just and you are the justifier. We thank you, Lord, that in Christ we have redemption, 
because you set him forward as a propitiation by his blood. Father, I pray that as we open this word, I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our hearts. I pray that you've been doing work in our hearts, Lord, the unseen work of tilling the ground of our hearts to receive your word so that transformation may take place. Father, I can only get this word to people's ears. I ask that by your Spirit, you take it from their ears to all of our hearts. May Christ be glorified this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. We've been in a short little four-part series leading up to Easter morning entitled, The Necessity and Sufficiency of the Gospel. The first two parts were looking at the necessity of the Gospel. In other words, why do we need the Gospel? And we answered that very simply in two parts. Part one, because God is holy. Part two, because man is sinful. And now we turn our attention to look at the sufficiency of the gospel. In other words, why does the gospel save? Why is the gospel enough to save? As Josh said earlier, why is the gospel enough to save us and not plus works? Hopefully we have come to a very solid, firm understanding of our necessity for the gospel. And if not, Let us be reminded this morning in verse 19 that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that's all of us, so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world be held accountable to God. Indeed, all of us are accountable to God. Christianity is not merely a faith among other faiths to choose and one way to choose to live your life. We are all accountable to God. We all stand before Him either justified or needing to be justified. As Leonard Ravenhill once said, you are either dead in sin or dead to sin. So now as we turn to look at the sufficiency of the gospel. I want to lay before you our first title heading today, as you see in your bulletin, which is the problem. The problem. When it comes to the gospel, many people think that the problem that the gospel answers is how does a lonely God bring straying man back into relationship with himself? If that sounds a little silly to your ears this morning, I'll give you a couple of examples. You know, I believe that because of so many of our damsel in distress movies and books and storylines that we like to watch and read and follow, we tend to superimpose that on the message of the gospel. That the gospel is really nothing more than a lovesick God doing all that he can, risking his life against better judgment to rescue his favorite gal. While that might make a good movie and a good book, that's not the gospel. It's a great unfortunate reality 
that we sing songs that represent this fact. You are undoubtedly familiar of Reckless Love by Corey Asbury. It says, oh, the overwhelming, reckless love of God. Again, portraying this lovesick, reckless God who just didn't really understand, he didn't really fully think out all of the implications of what it would mean to give his son to the world. He wasn't really thinking this through. This was a reckless decision, almighty God. It's not the gospel. We have another song. Undoubtedly, you've heard this one by Hillsong United. What a beautiful name it is. There's this most unfortunate line in this song because it's a great song otherwise where the lyrics sing, you didn't want heaven without us. So Jesus, you brought heaven down. These aren't just maybe a little bit off. These lyrics shape the way that we think about God. We don't just get our theology from the Bible. We sing our theology. We sing what we believe. And if we believe that God's love is either reckless or that God is in heaven lonely without us, we have drastically misunderstood the character and nature of God. And we need to go back to part one and understand that God is holy. We need to go back to part one and understand that He has no need of us. I don't seem to recall Genesis 1 beginning with, in the beginning, God was lonely. In the beginning, God was staring out His window in heaven on a cloudy, rainy day and was just feeling nostalgic because He was missing us. Does anybody's Bible read that way? If so, please return it immediately. Because that's not how it goes. The reality is that God, in perfect union with Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from all eternity past, needing nothing, lacking nothing, out of His good pleasure, out of the overflow of His love, chose a certain way to enact human history. We are the lucky, not lucky, we are the blessed beneficiaries of this story, most certainly. But let's not make the mistake that the problem that the gospel is answering is that God is lonely. That God, for some reason, needs us. This is the beauty of God's love. Because if He loved us out of a necessity, my friends, this morning we would stand in danger because what happens when He doesn't need us anymore? That God could change His mind and turn His back on His children. Thanks be to God. He had no need of us. He was just fine without us. But because of His great love, He sent His Son to redeem us. Because of His great love, not our great personality. I'm sure you're fantastic. I'm sure you're a great person. I'm sure you're a hit around the water cooler at the office. But let's understand that the Lord doesn't need us. He chooses freely, willingly, and graciously. John 3.16 is not a desperate kind of love where God is lacking fulfillment. So he says, what can I give to have them back? It is a very much in control God 
saying, this is what I choose to do. And he sent his son. And the son did not go begrudgingly. The son did not go have to be coerced into coming to the earth. The son went willingly. Heaven would still be beautiful. He would still be in perfect satisfaction and union with the Godhead had he never chosen to save anyone. He would be just fine without us. That's the beauty of God's love. So he doesn't need us, but he loves us. This is demonstrated in Paul saying, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A thousand sermons over a thousand lifetimes could be preached out of that one statement. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Could there be a more compelling reason for us to see that the gospel is about Him, not about us? We are blessed recipients. We are blessed beneficiaries. But the gospel is first and foremost about the Lord showing His attributes in justifying sinners. It is showing the fullness of God's character. Nowhere do we see all of God's attributes on full display more perfectly than in the gospel. We see His holiness, His justice, His wrath. We see His love, His grace, His, grace, His mercy, His wisdom. This was a wise plan. It wasn't reckless. This was wisdom. God displaying how wise He is in doing it this way. Thus, the great problem that is solved by the Gospel is how can sinful man be reconciled to a holy God? You're undoubtedly familiar with Isaiah 6. The song sung around the throne room. Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. If that be true, how can sinful man be reconciled to that God? That angels bow before Him, that angels cover their face, that angels cover their ears, and all they can do is worship Him because of the splendor of His holiness. How can you and I be made right before this God? We all, like Isaiah, fall to the floor and cry out, Woe is me, for I am a sinful man. I have unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. In this problem, it is man that has the problem. Because God is the one who is holy. He is the one who has been sinned against. It is man who stands condemned before God. It is man who is destined for an eternity in hell. It is man who will live forever separated from the good and gracious gaze of Almighty God. Or as Paul says it, the whole world will be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So what is man to do? What are we to do? How can we answer this problem? How can we solve this problem? Every single false religion in some way or another is a failed attempt to solve that problem by good works. Penance. Sacraments. 
so on and so forth. Do good things, God will be good to you. Well, I just believe that Christianity is about trying your hardest. No. Your hardest will not get you justified before the Lord. Christianity is about receiving Christ's best. It's saying that your works are not good enough. All of our righteousness is as nothing before a holy God. He says here, no human being will be justified in his sight. Just look at those words in verse 20. What a punch in the gut this is. For by works of the law, some human beings will be justified in his sight. No. For by works of the law, at least a few human beings will be justified. No human being will be justified in his sight. I love what Paul says. No human being. That means nobody. That means nobody. That means not the pastor. That means not the, the evangelist, not the missionary, not the person who has perfect church attendance, not the person who gives a lot of money to charity. No human being. And then he says that. He doesn't just say no Christian will be justified. He says no human being. In other words, reinforcing what he says that the whole world is going to be held accountable. No human being. No one who has ever walked this planet, no one who ever will, no one who currently does, will ever come close to justifying themselves by works of the law. Or we could say, by good works, or by penance, or by sacraments, or by this, or enter, fill in the blank. No human being will be justified. That means you and me. No religion, no moral living. The whole world stands accountable to God. This is where all mankind stands, irreparably condemned before God. This is indeed a great problem. There is a galaxy they found. It's called, listen to this great name, GN-Z11. Murray's, you might want to write that down for a baby name. GN-Z11. It is 32 billion light years, they think, away from the earth. 32 billion light years. That is an unfathomable distance from here to there. We could all start a trek across the universe. None of us would make it. And still, the distance that exists between holy God and sinful man is greater. It is impossible to cross this chasm. So, again, what is man to do? How does he justify himself in the eyes of God? Let's turn our attention to the propitiation. Let's look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. This is our second title, is the propitiation. I want us to look at this line of thinking that the righteousness of God apart from the law, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe that we are being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth. As you know, Friday is Good Friday where we will celebrate and reflect upon the crucifixion and what happened there. So this is the final week of Jesus Christ here on this earth. And it was a perfect, blameless life that He led. The life that you and I could never live. Here Paul states at the end of verse 21 that the law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. What does that mean? The law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God. Maybe you'll remember Leviticus 19.2 that God said, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. The Lord was setting forth a law. It's what we call the law of Moses to show the Israelites how to be holy as God is holy. In Deuteronomy 12.28 it says, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. As you know, Israel was not careful to obey these words that God commanded them. They immediately made a golden calf to worship. Just a few Just shortly after they got out of Egypt, they forgot who this great God was, erected a statue and said, this is the Lord who rescued us from captivity. Thus, they disobeyed. And they grumbled and complained the whole time they were in the wilderness. A trip that should have taken less than two weeks took 40 years. And you think your husband gets lost. This was a journey that should have taken less than two weeks, and it lasted 40 years. A whole generation of people passed away in the wilderness and was never able to make it into the promised land because of their hard and impenitent hearts. How many times do we look at the Israelites and say, you guys just never figure it out, do you? And then we turn from the Bible and we lead lives that display that we just never figure it out either. We look at Adam and Eve as though they are anomalies. Well, if I was there, I would have done things differently. But the reality is that Adam and Eve only displayed what is inherent to all of our nature, that we tend to mess things up, at the very least. Moses was put over the people to act as a mediator between God and the people of God. He was to bring them into the promised land and teach them how to live holy before a holy God. 
God gave Moses the law to teach his people. He taught them of the holiness of God. He taught them of of God and that the Lord would continue to be their God, watching over them if they would walk in obedience. But even Moses himself disobeyed the command of God. And not even Moses was able to make it into the promised land. This was supposed to be the mediator between God and the people of God. And even the mediator messed up. Even the mediator disobeyed the command of God. And he died outside of the promised land. Over the course of time, God sent judges to judge his people and watch over his people. The judges turned away from the Lord. God sent kings to rule his people. The kings led the people into all sorts of idolatry and pagan practice. God sent the prophets to bring the word of the Lord to his people that they might repent of their sin and return to the Lord. What happened? They killed the prophets. This is the witness of the law and the prophets. In other words, the whole testament, the Old Testament, the man is utterly ruined by sin. And not even the most righteous among us, not even Moses, who saw God in the burning bush. Think about this. There's a place where he says that he spoke with God face to face, and not even this man could obey the Lord fully. What does that teach us about our nature? That even the best among us cannot justify themselves. Isaiah 64, 5 through 7. Behold, you are angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This was all of mankind before Christ. This is the testimony of the law and the prophets. But the prophets did also speak of a coming one, one who would make all things right, one who would be born of a virgin, whose name would be Emmanuel, God with us, who would carry away the iniquity of his people. He would be the Messiah for not only the Jewish people, but all of the ends of the earth. Isaiah records God speaking to the Lord in Isaiah 49.6. It is too, listen to this, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What's God saying? He's speaking to Jesus saying, it's not even hard enough. It's such a light, small thing for you to just go redeem Israel. We're going to save, offer salvation to the ends of the world. Everyone. Here's the call of grace through faith in Jesus. It's too easy, he says. How? Propitiation. 
Paul writes that God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. We learn in Leviticus 17.11 that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. In other words, when the Lord set up the sacrificial system in the Old Covenant, it was to show us that the blood, the giving of a life, is what makes atonement for our souls, that covers our sin. That's what atonement means, is covering or wiping away. And in the Old Testament, it was accomplished by the sacrifice of an animal. This animal would be the substitute for a person's sins. Remember, the wages of sin is death. The animal is put forward as the substitute for us to cover our sins so that man doesn't die, the animal dies and covers the sins of the people. But Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What? God, you set this system up. You set up this system for us to bring you bulls and goats and sacrifice them. You told us that the atonement is in the blood. It's in the giving of the life. And now you're saying that it doesn't take away sins. This is why they had to continually offer sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. That's why God put His own Son forward as a spotless lamb. This is why we say He's the Lamb of God. Because it, now God the Father was bringing His own sacrifice to the altar to atone for sins. Blood of bulls and goats wasn't enough. John the Baptist knew this well. He said in John 1.29 when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God. What was this like for John the Baptist who had heard the prophets, who knew that the blood of the bulls and goats wasn't enough, and now he finally sees, here's the coming one. The anointed one has finally come to the world, and he's the one who's going to finally take our sins away. This is why he preached the way he preached and why he was eventually killed. Turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and the chapters surrounding it are prophesying of the servant that the Lord, Yahweh, is setting forth for his people. This song is called The Suffering Servant. In Psalm or Isaiah 53, we're going to read verses 3 through 6, and then we're going to skip down to 10 through 11. Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely 
He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. With When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. My goodness. This is what Paul is talking about when he said that God put forth Jesus as a propitiation for our sins. That on Jesus was laid all of our sin, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, spilled His blood, meaning He died in our place. He was beaten and kicked and spat upon, His beard ripped out, His hands nailed to the cross. He died the most gruesome death in the most humiliating way for you and for me. One of the great Unfortunate things about the church culture today is we've heard so much about the cross and the crucifixion that we tend to yawn at what happened. And I don't just mean physically yawn, but our hearts yawn. Oh, is that it? I know the story. A man died. I get it. Do we understand? He was bearing your grief. He was bearing your sin, your rebellion, your broken promises to the Lord, your most filthy, disgusting, reprehensible sin was laid on Jesus Christ. He took it upon himself. This is why Romans 4, 5 tells us that God justifies the ungodly. That's what we are, is ungodly. But how is it that God, who said that He will by no means clear the guilty, how can He clear the guilty? It's by one standing in the place, the mediator. Finally, we have Jesus Christ, the true mediator, judge, prophet, priest, and king. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Peace with 
God, indeed the Lord laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. Let us understand then that the cross reveals to us just how heinous a crime in the eyes of God our sin is. That He would crush His own Son. That He would suffer utter humiliation. Dying naked and alone as a criminal. The one who knew no sin died in your place. He died in the place of people who only know sin. We talked about last week how we are so sinful to the extent that just the way that a fish doesn't know how wet it is, we don't truly know how sinful we are until we look at the cross. And there we see the punishment that we deserved laid upon spotless, blameless, perfect, beautiful Jesus. The one who angels adore. The one who forever in eternity past was in perfect harmony and union with God the Father who never knew sin became sin for you and for me. Who can fathom this sacrifice? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake. He made him sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why the gospel is sufficient to save even the worst of sinners. This is why a false gospel, a plus works gospel is so reprehensible because it looks at the sacrifice of Jesus and says, eh, that's not enough. You need more than that. To say something like that would be to not understand and appreciate the worth of Jesus Christ. He bore the full measure of sin committed by you and me on the cross, suffering under the full measure of God's wrath meant for us. He did this so that we might become the righteousness of God. Finally, the prize. Section 3. The prize. It is twofold. Here in our passage, we see the first part quite clearly. Verse 23 shows us that we get the righteousness of God apart from keeping the law by exercising faith in Christ Jesus. Then we look at the work He accomplished on the cross and we look at ourselves understanding that we are ruined sinners with no hope to come to God on our own and that Christ Jesus is our only hope. That we come to God with giving Him our faith, the God-given faith that He's given us. We exercise it in Christ Jesus and God the Father looks at you and says, your slate is clean, you are justified. Because your good works, no. Because of the good works of Jesus Christ. Because He fulfilled it for you. Because you weren't good enough, Jesus is. And He still is. The grace of God is such that 
a billion sinners have come to God. Who knows how many sinners have come to God, have written songs about God, have preached about God, have spoken of His grace and mercy, and we have yet to fill up the full measure of God's good grace. He's still pouring it out for you today, this morning. If you've never exercised faith in Jesus Christ, It is a promise of God Almighty who never lies that if you put your faith in Jesus and don't trust yourself and repent of your sins, you will be saved. And your slate will be wiped clean before Him. You will be justified and it will be you too along with all of us looking at Him and saying all of our iniquities have been laid on Him. All of them. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you kidding me? Why? Because Jesus spilled His blood. Why? Because it's Jesus who died. Why? Because it's Jesus who took your sins upon Himself. That's why. Let's stand. Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Verse 24 tells us again that His grace is a gift. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus prays, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The real true prize is not just justification. It's that you get Jesus. It's that you trade in your sin and your filth and your wretchedness. And you get Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that it was your will to do it this way. We thank you for setting your son forward as a propitiation for us. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grasp even just a little bit more how incredible your grace and your mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus are. I pray that we would learn and that we would grow in this, that we might be more Christ-like, that we might tell more people about this Christ. Please go with us and take us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Grace, peace, and mercy to you all.